Welcome to the Legal Toolkit, where you'll get the latest trends and business initiatives that help your law firm every day. Hear from the experts setting the standards for the legal, insurance, and law enforcement industries. The Legal Toolkit is brought to you by Catuno Court Reporting and Stantel Transcription, a New England-based business serving the legal community nationwide since 1966. You're listening to the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to the Legal Toolkit on Legal Talk Network. My name is Jared Correa, and I am the Law Practice Management Advisor with the Massachusetts Law Office Management Assistance Program, or if you like acronyms, LOMAP. LOMAP provides free and confidential consulting services to Massachusetts attorneys. And I'm Ray Catuno, founder and CEO of Catuno Court Reporting and Stentel Transcription. Uh, the acronym there would be CCRST. We are thrilled to be here today. Thank you. All right, now that we've got all our acronyms out, today we're talking to you live from the Massachusetts Information Security Summit, Mass ISS. This is a first-of-its-kind all-day event featuring legal and IT professionals who are addressing all aspects of data privacy in Massachusetts. In attendance, we've got lawyers, business owners, corporate managers, IT professionals, and HR managers, among others. Essentially, anyone who's affected by this regulation within the state, so any business owner. Today on the Legal Toolkit, we're pleased to be joined by two special guests who are going to discuss security compliance issues from both the IT and legal perspectives. Joining us now is Diane Lawton, General Counsel of the Commonwealth's Office of Consumer Affairs and Business Regulation, OCABR. Before that, Diane spent 17 years at the Office of the Attorney General in the Consumer Protection Division and much of that time as managing attorney. Welcome to the Legal Toolkit, Diane Lawton. Thank you very much. Our uh, other guest today is Chris Squire. He's a renowned speaker on national security issues for new technology systems. Chris travels extensively, speaking to organizations of all sizes on the subject of information and holistic security. His goal is to take the often complex and confusing world of security and present it in a practical way. And those of you on the radio can't see it, but Chris's name tag features his first name and a smiley face, so it's got to be true. Chris is a frequent speaker at the federal, state, and local levels, including for such agencies as the USDA in Washington, D.C. Welcome to the Legal Toolkit, Chris Squire. Oh, thanks, Jared. Appreciate it. All right, so thanks both of you for being here. Let's dive into the questions right away. Uh, we'll start with Diane. Diane, what were the main effects of the August 2009 revisions to the 201 CMR 17 provisions, and who should be paying attention to those revisions? Okay, well, our revisions were to actually make the regulations more friendly, believe it or not. Uh, the idea was to allow for a risk-based approach so that you have to evaluate what information you've got and um, protect that information, um, but reasonably. No one expects the huge business to have the same standards for protecting information that a small business does. Um, you are supposed to you know, make technically feasible protections for your personal information. So who should be uh, interested? Um, pretty much everybody. Uh, the law covers pretty much everybody. That's 93H. Our regulations are directed to those people who provide goods or services. Um, for-profit businesses and not-for-profit um, as well. Thanks, Diane. Sure. Diane, if I may uh, ask a question. With respect to a business relationships with third-party vendors, what is required of the business, what is required of the vendor, 
and will a contract provision be required? Okay, well, the first thing that's required is that you do your due diligence. Talk to your third-party provider and see what steps they are taking to protect the information, the personal information that you're providing them with. They need to be compliant with Massachusetts law, too, and they need to confirm to you that they are. Uh, you do not need to have a contract provision in place until after the law goes into, the regulations go into effect, which is March 1st of 2010. So if you already have a contract in place, there doesn't need to be a contract provision. But after March 1st, your contracts going forward will have to have those provisions in them. Uh, so you have a grace period until March 1st of 2012, because we know that some contracts run for more than one year. And let's uh, move over to Chris now. Uh, and Chris is going to give us a little insight into the mind of the hacker. So, Chris, from an IT perspective, what is the hacker mindset? Well, it's a good question. So, <laughs> it's interesting, really. I mean, it, so much of it is, as much as it is from an IT perspective, there's also that psychological perspective. One thing that I think is a common myth is that um, there are certain uh, verticals that are more prone to being attacked than others. It's a democratic system. And while you may be victim of a targeted attack, and we certainly see those, there's a wide net that's uh, cast. Whether you're in healthcare, whether you're in legal, whether you're a nonprofit, you're, you're vulnerable. If you have information that somebody wants and can make money off of, you're a target. How they go about that methodology? Well, it depends. There's several different ways. Chris, if I may ask, uh, what are the common methods that hackers apply? Well, there's, there's, there's a, I guess there's almost a myriad of ways, but most of the common ways, you can do one, uh, one that's pretty big is cast a wide net, right? Find, uh, get yourself involved in an organization that, that's uh, funded, uh, let's say, on, the, on the, the black market of information. Uh, go ahead, get yourself some affiliates. Get some folks that do something better that you, than you, but... You do something better than they do. So get some partners, get a distribution network going. We call those botnets, right? Uh, compromised computers, it could be 10, 50,000, 100,000, 500,000 or more, right? Get them working for you, right? Those, those botnet computers are in businesses all over the world, charities, home, uh, you name it. No, no, no system is completely immune to that. Get those under your control, get that malware out there and start letting people click on your links and then getting infected. They get in your machines, they get your information. Other ways, targeted attacks. Uh, certain organizations will profile other organizations based on, hey, I think there's a big fish to catch here if I get inside and get to their uh, digital information assets, right? How do we do that? We footprint, right? We go ahead and we watch them on the net. We watch Facebook, we watch LinkedIn, we go to websites like uh, uh, IntelliUS or any other search engine that can provide information about another organization individual, profile themselves to look like somebody they want to do business with, watch, find an opportunity, and start attacking when they find that. Thanks, Chris. That's some good information, uh, especially for attorneys who I think most of whom think maybe a botnet is something that vacuums their floors for them so they don't have to. So, <laughs> so I thought too at first. <laughs> I did too, but now I know better. Uh, let's move back to Diane for a second here. Um, Diane, as you know, portions of the revised mass regulations and the existing mass regulations were based on uh, the FTC's red flag rules. But the red flag rules have recently been held not to apply to lawyers based on a suit by the ABA. What do you think the effect of that decision will be on the Massachusetts regulations, if any? 
Uh, right now, we don't think there's any effect on the Massachusetts regulations. Uh, the red flag rule was directed to financial institutions. The Massachusetts law is much, much broader. It's directed to any person who has personal information on a Massachusetts resident. Uh, and so uh, our regulations do apply to lawyers as well. Thanks. Um, that's pretty definitive. Now, Chris, back to you for a second. Uh, how often and in what ways... I can't ways... top that, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we'll try. we got we got to fill another 10 minutes or so here, I think, so we got to do something. Um, All right. I'll try. <laughs> All right, Chris. So how often and in what ways do hackers end up targeting attorneys specifically? Well, um, I think those types of things, if they're going to go after a law office, and we certainly have seen those types of cases out there, uh, it usually... And this is going to be a broad-based type of thing. But generally, it is a targeted attack. Um, it is by an individual or an organization that knows the region pretty well, may know that type of business or the type of clients they go after, and understands, hey, you know, from their client base that I've seen, eh, I'm, I might want that personal information. Whether it be through social engineering, right, which is the old con game. That's one thing that has never changed, whether you're in cyberspace or you're in uh, you know, the real world. The con game still plays out, right? So ultimately, when we talk about social engineering, it's trying to simply convince somebody that you're something you're not, right? Calling up a, a, an attorney's office, say, hey, you know what? I, I'm kind of in a, in, in a bind here. I really could speak to, I need to speak to somebody. You know, I need, I need counsel, you know, um, asking certain things or, or even we've seen things where people have impersonated uh, uh, somebody who would do business with the in, in organization, go in there, start chatting people up, getting some sense of information, bringing that out and using it against the organization. From an IT perspective, certainly uh, a target attack would involve somebody profiling the how they speak out to the world, right? Uh, what services they offer online, understanding what their network addresses are, uh, how they uh, uh, connect together, and, and certainly... Uh, looking at slowly knocking on the door, poking holes, right? What can I get on the inside to have somebody click on it and download a malware so, or some type of malware so I can take control of that machine and then do whatever I want from that machine inside the network. So, so we see that quite a bit too. Chris, if I could ask a question. Uh, I think I scared myself. The <laughs> uh, question I have is uh, what do hackers do with the information once they acquire it? And how quickly do they act with this? Uh, sell it, sell it, sell it as quickly as possible, sometimes within hours. And it's not just if I, let's say I, I'm a hacker and I go after and I say, okay, I'm successful in getting somebody's uh, personally identifiable information, right? And I can get, you know, social security numbers, what have you, whatever I can get. It's not just using that directly and starting to exploit that to try and open up um, uh accounts in their name, so forth and so on, you know, credit cards, instant approval over the phone, you know, all this type of stuff. It's, can I put that through this whole black market of information, sell it on a forum site? I'll, you know what? I'll sell it cheap. I just want a quick buck, right? In fact, we've even seen attacks out there where folks have set up um, online forums that say, hey, not only will I give you their information, I'll guarantee because I checked how much money is in their bank account, and I'll sell it at a discount, and I'll give you a money-back guarantee. Uh, this is why I'm better than my black market competition. I'll give you a money-back guarantee if that money isn't in there by the time you buy that information from me. Pretty scary stuff. Mm -hmm. 
I'm going to start contacting my business associates through smoke signals <laughs> at this point. I don't think we can talk to Chris anymore. <laughs> Maybe we will. Uh, I get that a lot, really. <laughs> so back to Diane now. Um, Diane, what does your office anticipate or hasn't anticipated will be the average cost for compliance for, say, a solo attorney or a small law firm? We haven't really anticipated what a cost would be, but we understand from talking to a bunch of tech folks uh, that there is uh, free encryption software available uh, on the internet. So for your um, personal information that's electronically stored, uh, you can get encryption software. For your paperwork, um, how about a locked filing cabinet? Uh, it's, it's a concept. Um, and, you know, you can go to your local uh, business supply store and get those. And if you don't want to buy, you know, 10 lock supply cabinets, okay, cull through the information that you've got in your files and only secure the information you need to secure. Take out individual documents in a consumer's file and put it in a separate file and put that in the locked cabinet. Uh, it's common sense solutions that are not really that costly. It's just think about what you've got and how you can protect it. Yeah, and those are some good common sense solutions. And I think one point is that instead of going for the most expensive technology, probably go for the best technology and ratchet down the price from there. <laughs> yeah. That's good. Um, all right, Chris, so what are the three most important things a business can do to prevent hacking? Um, you know, to follow up, that's a great question. To follow up on, on Diane's comments, look at what information you gather. And if you don't absolutely need to hold that information, don't. Uh, that is instantly a liability to any organization uh, if you're collecting more information than you really need to use. Because you, once you got it, you're responsible for it. So best not to have it if you absolutely don't need it. If you are compromised, um, it, there's there's no, uh, you know, it depends on the compromise and the nature of what happens, so forth and so on. And you could certainly play armchair quarterback in a lot of these situations. But if you find yourself in the middle of an incident and you can go ahead and say, look, I really think something's going on. One thing, you certainly, in most cases, what, and this is just a general best practices type of thing, in most cases, um, you certainly don't want to uh, initially manipulate the attack. Um, you're looking at evidence right there, and depending on the nature of the case, it may be something where you want to involve something like the Internet Crime Complaint Center, uh, IC3.gov. That is the Cybercrimes Division of the FBI. Every local office, uh, and certainly Massachusetts, can help you out with that as well if you think there's a, a, a security incident going on um, that, that really uh, um, could compromise you. Your best plan of attack is mitigate your profile. Once you're in... It's like uh, it's like an infestation. It is you never really sure if you got it out, uh, and you're going to live with that. And and so that's a challenge. Uh, but regardless, once it's in, you're losing money uh, because you're not doing business. The best thing to do is mitigate your attack profile. Make sure that you have uh, up to date, and you've probably heard this before, right? Up to date security patches and all that stuff, which absolutely makes sense. Uh, you also should have up to date technology. There has never been a more time, a better time for affordable. Uh, enterprise-level security technology that's smart, that can go into businesses starting at 10 nodes. Um, good stuff there. One last thing is that, you know, trust uh, proven partners in the field, folks that you can bring on as trusted advisors that understand this stuff, that, that have dealt with this before, right? You're not alone out there. So many businesses I talk to, and I'm lucky enough to cover uh, territory between three little, little bodies of water, Atlantic, Pacific, and Arctic Ocean, right? And I talk to businesses of all sizes and organizations of all sizes, and they do think they're alone in this, and they're so not, right? A lot of people can help. So get on the phone, right? Uh, come to events like this. <laughs> You'll find those people. 
And the Arctic Ocean business must be booming at this point. Those, the, I'll tell you, those polar bears, man, they got some security vulnerabilities. They, they, they love data privacy. Not, not against no me, other. though. They'll kick my butt. So, <laughs> <laughs> All right. So thank you, Chris. More sage advice. Uh, we need to take a quick break right now. But when we return, we'll have more with our guests, Diane Lawton and Chris Squire. The business of law is changing. Don't let compliance and security concerns weigh you down. Catuno Court Reporting and Stantel Transcription have the solutions with their legal toolkit. Need access to your case files anywhere? Our compliance solutions keep you connected anytime and from anywhere. Find out more at catuno.cc. That's C-A-T-U-O-G-N-O dot C-C. Or call 888-228-8646. Legal Talk Network has been producing award-winning legal podcasts since 2005. Subscribe to our RSS feed and start downloading today. It's free. Welcome back to the Legal Toolkit on the Legal Talk Network. We're joined today by Diane Lawton, who's the General Counsel of the Commonwealth's Office of Consumer Affairs and Business Regulation, and by Chris Squire, who's a renowned speaker on national security issues for new technology systems. We're broadcasting today live from the Massachusetts Information Security Summit held today in Springfield, a first-of-its-kind all-day event tracking information security in Massachusetts. We're going to open up this question to both Chris and Diane, so responses from both of you would be appreciated. What do you believe are the best methods for protecting information on PDAs or smartphones? I, I, get, I guess I'll go first on that one. Um, so there, there's a couple things, right? Um, I, I'll always preach and, and uh, have arguments with more colleagues than I can count on this, but I think your best line of defense, your first line of defense is awareness and education. If you tell folks, there, there's established best practices on how to use these mo- mobile technology. The problem is, is that not a lot of people are aware of that, uh, or maybe just don't know where to go. Um, talk to your consultants, talk to the folks that, that deal with these types of things, and they certainly can tell you that um, you know, there's, there's certain policies that should be adhered to and educated on, uh, and that's your cheapest way to, to defend yourself and mitigate your attack profile. Uh, and show your employees, hey, when you should you be using this? Should you be looking over your shoulder? You know, what, how do you use mobile technology in, in a, let's say, a coffee shop or something like that? Um, understand that. You know, there's also uh, other solutions out there, you know, that um, you, you certainly want to look into. I think the biggest thing right now I get is what about encryption, right? How do we deal with encryption? Up until fairly recently, uh, encryption is very intensive in terms of processing power, right? You're taking information, you're scrambling it, you're putting, folding it back together, scrambling it again, scrambling it again, and then sending it out, right? Or receiving it, and then you have to descramble that. So, that's very processor intensive. Up until fairly recently, a lot of phones just couldn't handle that. It's not the case anymore. So you do want to look at proven vendors in the field that offer encryption solutions, whether the data is at rest. And I'll tell you, I'll, I'll throw in, um, in addition to PDAs and smartphones, laptops and netbooks. Absolutely. Uh, if there's a breach, it's probably because <laughs> more than likely something was left in a cab or at an airport. So uh, you're going to have to report that. So unless it's encrypted, in many cases, uh, you're looking at, um, uh, you know, you, you've done your due diligence. So it depends on the, the compliance reg and so forth and so on. But you know, it, it, nothing else you know, that it's going to be really hard for somebody to get at that information. So encryption at rest, encryption in transport, look at those types of solutions. And your thoughts, Diane? My, my thoughts are much more simple. Uh, my, my, so I'm don't not use the, tech. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not the tech person. Well, don't use tech if you don't have to. Don't... Uh, Get information that you don't need, 
and train the lowliest of your employees not to carry stuff around that they don't need to carry around. More of the reports that we had of security breaches involved people who left a laptop in their car. Uh, they took their even their briefcases and, and took them somewhere they shouldn't have. Uh, you don't need to have that stuff with you. Why, why would you carry around other people's personal information if you don't need to? So don't. USB stick in the conference yeah. room, something like that. <laughs> right. yeah. Yeah. Right. And this is why we have the tech perspective and the legal perspective. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, Chris, now if a hack has occurred... Tell me the three most important things that a business can do to limit its exposure. Well, first, I cry just a little bit. Uh, but outside of that, <laughs> outside of that, so understanding that it, you should have a process in place uh, for handling these types of things. You know, these incidents are going to happen. It's not a matter of it's, if it's a matter of when. Having a, a, a priority response and, and a plan in place, like any other threat to the business, not just from a technical perspective, but from a legal perspective, from uh, disasters, what have you, having a process in place where you have, hey, here's who gets contacted first, here's how they deal with it, so forth and so on up the chain. Having that uh, procedure in place and having that um, uh, reviewed and, uh, you know, practiced to some degree. And I'm not saying, like, unplug the systems in the middle of the day, uh, but certainly having some type of practice around there so people understand this uh, is going to go a long way to help you limit that exposure. Again, we talked earlier about, you know, the best way to prevent that is to mitigate your attack profile from the start. Again, once it's in, it is really tough to root out. Depending on the nature of the attack and how, how expert they are, uh, it may be very, very difficult to detect uh, immediately, and it may run for months or more. The idea behind that is if they're really good, if it's a really targeted attack, they're going to want to keep that back door open because you're an ATM to them now. You're an ATM for information. So they want to keep that door open and keep knocking on that door and coming in and say, hey, well, look, new, uh, new customer database here. I'm going to grab that you know, and, and, and sell that off. Now, Diane, what are the best practices for protecting paper documents that include protected information? First thing, as I mentioned, for electronic information. If you don't need it, don't take it. Uh, if you find you don't need it any longer, destroy it. And that means using a cross-cut shredder, not a strip shredder. Uh, if you have employees who don't need access to the information, don't let them have it. Lock it down in cabinets. Lock your offices. Uh, it's the... You know, it used to be, my, my very, very favorite reference is to the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, where the earth is destroyed, and, you know, Ford, poor Ford Prefect says, you know, uh, why didn't you guys tell us about this? And they said, we did. It was in a filing cabinet in the bottom drawer on Alpha Centauri. Why didn't you go look? Well, that's where information used to be. It that used is... to be in the bottom drawer on Alpha Centauri. It's not there anymore. That's a legal toolkit. Great literary analogies <laughs> yeah, that as well. Is so I mean, awesome. You quote a hitchhiker. You can't beat that with a bat. <laughs> Well, Chris, with the concerns of all the businesses out there and uh, they're looking at this new regulation, uh, maybe you could help here. What are the three most important things businesses should look for in third-party compliance providers? Um, that's, that's another fantastic question. Um, I, I think the best thing is looking for folks that do have a track record. 
um, that do have some level of certification. Um, for example, like a, a CISSP or CISA or or something like that. Uh, that's a certified information system security professional and certified information systems auditor, uh, respectively. But also some experience that are specific that's specific to your field um, that really understand uh, your pain points. And the best thing to do is kind of look at their their pedigree and, le- and their resume uh, as far as past clients, and then just sit down and have that conversation and, and say, well, you know. Tell me a little bit. I'm I'm in this business. Tell me what some of the experiences you've had in this. And I think you're going to know your business best, right? You're going to know whether or not that organization really knows what they're talking about and understands your pain point specifically versus, well, you know, they're trying to talk a good game, but maybe don't have that experience. So certainly you want to want to go ahead and and, and have those types of interviews. Um, somebody that really has that experience, that has that knowledge, uh, and, and and certainly. Um, you know, at the end of the day, uh, y- you got to be happy with them. Um, you know, you, you certainly want to keep track of that and you want to really feel comfortable. Uh, once you've, you've seen all the formal stuff, you want to feel comfortable. You want an organization that uh, is going to act as transparently as possible to your day-to-day business. That's going to complement it. That's going to enable it rather than interfere with it. Um, I always worry when an organization or a firm comes in and, says, and, and busts open the doors and says, no, 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 you're not doing it right. We got to n- take this offline and we got to start doing it this. Well, wait a minute. You know, the, if you want to get paid, I got to do business. So we have to find a way around this. And, and certainly that happens. So understanding a business enabler rather than uh, kind of uh, being adverse to that. I don't know if that's three things, but that's kind of where I was at. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, let me ask this one too. Uh, what can a business do on its own without the aid of a third-party provider uh, um, to prevent hacking? That is, uh, I, I'm glad you asked that, and, and here's why: because you know, with with the you know, ubiquity of the internet, there's so much information that's out there. I recommend business owners spend a little time out there. Type in their business name and maybe their address into Google and so forth and so on and find out where it turns up. Find out things like, does a website have uh, your uh, wireless access points broadcasting uh, on their, uh, there's websites out there that, that log all that stuff, you know, uh, that, that have exactly where your wireless access points are. Um, well, that, that'd be good to know because if they're up there, you probably need to secure that a little bit more. Um, you want to find out what other people are talking about you uh, uh, about you and your organizations. You want to look at uh, things like um, social uh, networking sites, you know, like the Facebooks of the world. They're fantastic tools for information uh, and business. But you got to understand, if people are talking quite a bit about your organization, one, they might very well be internal to your organization, uh, which uh, that indicates that you probably need a stronger policy that, that people are aware of. Um, or outside the organization, what's the organization's perception? You know, it, you, you have no idea what people are talking about there until you know and take a look at that. And then you have to tighten up that education and policy structure accordingly within your organization. So easy ways to do that, we call that passive hacking or footprinting. Okay, thank you. Thanks, Chris. And if everybody has uh, not been scared away enough at this point to turn their computers off, um, that'll about do it for this edition of the uh, Legal Toolkit. I'm hiding under my desk right now. But but you still sound good. You sound as excellent. So uh, remember as well, you can check out all of Legal Talk shows at www.legaltalknetwork.com. And a very special thanks to our guests for being with me today. 
Diane, if listeners wanted to get more information, how would they reach you? They can reach me at Diane, D-I-A-N-E dot Lawton, L-A-W-T-O-N, at state.ma.us. And Chris, your contact information? Um, I can be reached through uh, New Technology Systems, and their website is ntsct.com. And you can find more information on the toolkit sponsor, Katuno Court Reporting, at www.katuno.cc. That's C-A-T-U-O-G-N-O dot C-C. And thanks again to our guests, Diane Lawton of OCABR and Chris Squire of New Technology Systems. Uh, And we hope that you'll be able to join us next time for the next edition of The Legal Toolkit. Thanks for listening to The Legal Toolkit, brought to you by Katuno Court Reporting and Stantel Transcription, right here on The Legal Talk Network. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.